It's my pleasure today to introduce Mitchell Parker, the Executive Director of Information Security and Compliance at IU Health. Uh, Mitch has done a significant amount of work in researching the effects of cloud and distributed computing, network-based threats, compliance, and privacy and security requirements on connected health devices. He works collaboratively with a number of EMR and biomedical equipment vendors to improve their security postures and provide better quality of service. And he's here to talk to us today about dreams of utopian thinking, what happens when they meet reality. With that, I'll let you take it away. Thank you very much. So good afternoon, everybody. Thank you all for having me here today. So we're gonna, so why are we here? So we'll talk about utopian thinking. It's the thinking of how society should be arranged, like in Plato's Republic. It talks about the ideal systems that should be organized and developed. It's a school of thought talking about how the world should be instead of how it is. And it's been a constant theme and trope in literature over the past several centuries. So the emergence of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency has caused a significant amount of utopic thinking over the past few years, ever since Satoshi published that paper in 2009. And the reason why is it's talked about overhauling the financial system and providing something that's more fair, that replaces the current system with one, one that replaces it, well, with one that's more fair to others, that allows the unbanked to bank and removes the power from the gigantic central banks, which a lot of people perceive as being, having too much power. And this brings a focus on instead of having just one gigantic player, consortia instead of one-to-one -one relationships, which is something I always talk about with blockchain is, it's about the consortia, not about the relationships. And realistically, the meteoric rise in Bitcoin prices, I remember when Bitcoin first came out, someone traded, what, 40 Bitcoin for a pizza? And I, that's one expensive pizza. And it brings a lot of people looking to make a quick buck, good or bad. And I can tell you about how many times on my Instagram feed people have actually <laughs> messaged me. <coughs> I'm not the only one who's got some voice problems today, talking about how I could triple my investment if I invest in Bitcoin using their index funds. So it's pretty common out there. So here's what really happens. I look at this as a five-step approach. Number one, you have a significant rise in market value that leads to alternative markets and belief that the market will be ever-expanding. So I give some previous examples. I'm going to talk about the Tulip Panic, Beanie Babies back in the late 1990s, baseball cards, dot-com stocks, the 2008 financial crisis with all the mortgage-backed securities, and of course, Bitcoin. You have euphoria causing willful negligence and ignorance of controls and agencies to regulate and prevent abuse. You have utopic thinking about alternative financial instruments leading to improvement in society due to belief in an infinite rise in value. Then you have the inevitable crashes and hacks and the realization that you need controls to prevent further crises from happening and remediate the root cause in the first place. So really, why are we here? We're here to show the role that information security and management has as part of a controls infrastructure in helping alleviate the inevitable crises that come from utopic thinking. So where do we begin? And it is not without irony, I have tulips here. We'll start with the Dutch tulip panic. In the late 1500s, with the advent of the Renaissance and people actually living in cities instead of living on farms controlled by serf and controlled by lords and being serfs, tulips made their way to Western Europe from Turkey a.k.a. the Ottoman Empire. In the early 1600s, 
people in the Netherlands actually figured out how to grow them effectively and turn them into a reproducible resource instead of having to continually import them from the Ottoman Empire. And there was pent-up demand because they became status symbols. And the prices of them, aka tulip futures, went up significantly, up to three-quarters of a million dollars in today's dollars for a tulip bulb. And people thought the prices were only going to go up. Now, one of the other advantages of the Renaissance is, in addition to bringing actual living in cities and not living in small towns, is it brought modern banking, which was has its roots in 15th century Italy with Medici and Fuggers. I believe the Medici, Banco de Medici is still around in Italy. So, also brought sophisticated financial instruments such as margin derivative contracts. So people could use those to buy more than they could actually afford, AKA you put five to 15% down for a tulip bulb future and you pay that, you pay that up front, then you flip it and sell it for a lot more money because you think the market's only going to go up from there. And the next thing you know, you, when you have, when it comes to time to pay back the other 95 to 85% you got to pay, you can pay that back and take money off the top. And however, in 1637, that was all well and good until it all collapsed. And anyone who bought tulips on derivatives or credit was completely wiped out because the prices of tulips went down like 95%, which meant that anyone that invested their savings in those instruments also got completely wiped out. So talk about another modern thing, baseball cards. I used to collect baseball cards when I was a kid and it turned into a huge market. But there's a little thing about baseball cards. From the time period of about 1952 until 1981, the Topps Corporation had exclusive rights with the Major League, ba Major League Baseball Players Association to produce baseball cards, which meant that you pretty much had one choice of baseball card. Until 1975, when the Fleur Corporation, formerly of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, decided to sue in federal court and ruled that this was illegal. And in 1980, it took five years to get through the federal court system back then. That was the case. They ruled it was illegal. So for the 1981 baseball season, you had three brands of baseball cards to choose from, which you had your Fleer, you had your Donruss, and you had your Tops. So also with that, in 1979, there was a statistics professor named James Beckett who put together what is known as a price guide that became Beckett's Baseball Card Monthly. So you actually had a market that was developed in 1979. 81 obviously had your first three competitors emerge. And now you had a market and a price guide, no longer a monopoly. And there was heated competition between the three vendors to put out the greatest cards, to put out special edition cards. And there started to be a major market. However, what really shook the market up was in, was the appreciating price of Mickey Mantle's rookie card, which in 1986 was going for $7,000. And the big one of all, the Honus Wagner T206. Honus Wagner did not like smoking, did not want his picture on a tobacco card. And approximately three of these cards exist in very good condition. It made news when Wayne Gretzky bought one for $451,000. Then investors started saying, hey, there's a lot of money in this. So you have multiple new players and card manufacturers get involved, starting with 1989, the Upper Deck Corporation, who released baseball cards for the sole purpose of and being investment grade. 
I know my cousin had the Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card. It was like the year after he, that card came out, it was already worth 19 bucks. It was huge. Baseball cards became a huge market and everything appreciated. People didn't think the price was going to go down and that Honus Wagner T206 card traded hands a number of times until it sold for like $3 million. That is until 1994 when the baseball player strike happens and interest in baseball because for the first time in 90 years there was no World Series went through the floor. The same thing that also happened was no interest in baseball, no interest in baseball cards. And also after that you had the steroid issues in the 2000s. Very specifically, Jose Canseco pretty much juicing up everyone in the sports. So that also did a lot of damage because anyone that had a rookie card that was worth a lot of money that was juicing, the values of their cards went down. So Barry Bonds, Mark McGuire, Jose Canseco all went through the floor. Nowadays, you can just go to that big Walmart over there in Lafayette and you can take a look at that shelf in the front by the cash registers and see nothing there. At one time, it was a prime investment and people were talking about baseball card futures. Now it's a commodity, except for the T206 and a few other big cards like that, like the Mickey Mantle rookie card. So this brings us to my next point. What's Bitcoin? It's a theoretically, and I say theoretically, decentralized digital currency that doesn't have a single administrator or central bank behind it. It allows peer-to-peer -peer payments without going through a financial institution. And yes, one of my sources for today's presentation was the original Satoshi paper from 2009. And it's based upon cryptographic proof, not upon any other controls. But it does one thing incredibly well, which is it guards against double spending. Current financial systems really don't do that very well. And there's the opportunity to double spend, especially if you know how to take advantage of nightly processing systems. Trust me, I used to work for a bank. So how does it work? So according to our Satoshi paper, new transactions, it's proof of work. New transactions are brought broadcast to all nodes, which these days is a lot of nodes. You put groups of transactions together by a, in a block by nodes. Each node works on finding a difficult proof of work. When a node finds one, it broadcasts it. Other nodes accept it as valid. And acceptance is noted by creating the next block in the chain using the hash of the previous block. And for those of you that took data structures in undergraduate computer science, yes, it's a gigantic linked list. And the first transaction in a block gives one coin owned by the creator. The longest chain is considered a source of truth. And we're going to get to that last one really quickly. So what's the incentive? You create, you create more blocks, you get more coins. And transactions fees take care of the rest of the costs. It does take CPU time and power to validate your transactions. And by calculating these blocks and throwing tons of computing power at it, you get money. And there is an incentive for economies of scale to make money. Or in the case of the Chinese, they've put a significant amount of their Bitcoin mining power next to all the hydroelectric dams they're building. So, true story, they've put a lot of ASIC miners right next to the dams because, hey, free power. So, isn't this bad for the environment? So, according to Digiconomist Net, yeah, it's really bad for it. You take a look right here for a single transaction. It's equivalent to the power consumption of an average U.S. household over 21 <coughs> days. And it's got a heck of a carbon footprint while it's at it. So yes, it does waste a lot of energy. So what are some of the other issues that we found? Anyone can be a node. There's no verification of who actually initiated or sent the transactions. And there's no recourse for rolling them back. 
And if someone were to control 51% of them, they could control and reverse transactions and transaction confirmations. So according to CoinMonks, when I was doing my research for this again, blockchain follows a theory that the longest chain or linked list is the truthful one based on the governance model. And I consider the 51% attack to be something akin to a race condition. Another thing from, any, from your undergrad computer science days. Meaning it's dependent upon the sequence or timing of events. In this case, the creation of the block. So I can create a whole bunch of blocks and really quickly create a longer linked list. I've created my own source of truth. And if you selectively block transactions, I, yes, you can create your own truth. So we look at it this way. There's, there's no trust, only crypto. And for a financial system to work, there has to be some degree of trust backed by evidence. So what are we positing today? Bitcoin is 21st century script. Script is an old early 20th century term that, that is a substitute for legal tender currency, often in the form of credit. So I'll give examples of your gift cards, gift certificates, store credit, and Ithaca hours, AKA local tender. So Ithaca hours, for those of you that don't know, it's, it's local currency meant to facilitate peer-to-peer -peer exchange of goods and services without charging interest and with keeping the money in the community. It's based upon hours of labor, and we're gonna get a lot more into detail about this labor. Later, it, is, it provides incentive to develop local businesses, and according to the IRS, it's legal. You just have to declare your, declare your earnings at the end of the year. So what have been the major uses of Bitcoin? Number one, and I speak as someone who's in healthcare who gets this question every day of the week, ransomware payments. You have a lot of small business transactions as well because there's a lot of small businesses out there that utilize Bitcoin these days, believe it or not. There's a, lot, there's a big effort in Africa to service the unbanked via smartphone-based transactions by putting Bitcoin wallets on some of the either Android-based smartphones they have there or some of the less powerful feature phones so that people who don't have a bank account can use their Bitcoin wallet and to exchange goods and services, which has had a lot of success in certain parts of Sub-Saharan Africa. I actually met with someone doing this last week who's doing it in, I believe, Namibia. And also P2P transactions for not, not safe for work material. And the reason why they do this is because the biggest problem you have in that industry is chargebacks. Biggest problem in any industry, any industry you have where there's a high chance of people saying, hey, that's not my charge, is chargebacks and people lose a lot of money on, chargeback, on chargebacks. So you wanna have something that's final in place so you don't get the chargebacks when you pay for those goods and services. Obviously, illegal goods and services, I'm gonna give three examples. Silk Road, breach data, which you can buy off of the Carter forums, credit cards, obviously, and obviously full identities out of that, and the other one, avoidance of taxes and bank interest because you're not passing through the financial system. So more issues that we found, it's pseudonymous, meaning that you know you're only sending to a wallet. You know nothing else. You don't know where that wallet is. And more importantly, you don't know the validity of the, Bitcoin, of the code in those nodes processing your transactions. So to give an example here, Microsoft took years to get their codes to NIST and NIST FIPS standards for, pro, for secure code for processing algorithms. Basically their encryption algorithm code took years to get validated and open source is not a panacea. A lot, of, a lot of this ecosystem is built upon open source. And I'll be very clear about this. The open source ecosystem is based on a lot of freeloaders. 
it's a lot of them that repackage the work of one or two contributors without verification or validation. I'm going to give the example of OpenSSL before Heartbleed. OpenSSL before Heartbleed had two developers, and they were trying to they were trying to put this gigantic piece of software together that every Linux distribution was using with hardly any financial con contribution. Huge, large amounts of software companies, some of the biggest software and hardware companies you know of, including some of the ones on computers that you're using right here, were using this code. They were giving them nothing back to full-time developers. Obviously, after Heartbleed, that changed. They got up to 15, and also Theo Dorette from the OpenBSD project got involved and decided, hey, how about I do a clean room rewrite of it and do it the right way because Theo has incredibly high standards for how he writes his code, which ended up with becoming LibreSSL. So again, you don't know the validity of that code, and considering what we found at open source, and also point out the NTP time protocol, one active developer, Every device you have that does not run a Microsoft operating system runs NTP. That's all I have to say about that. People don't put the emphasis on code validation where they should. So what does this lead to? We have a system in place for exchanging goods and services that takes up significant resources. And due to price fluctuations, the cost to run a node, because it takes so much energy to, to mine Bitcoin, your mining incentive fluctuates as well and we have no control over who's running what code to verify and validate the nodes. Meaning there's a potential for hijacking data and there's a potential for leveraging cryptographic library vulnerabilities to steal that data as well. And considering the high variety of Linux operating systems out there on the Bitcoin nodes, I would say the next Heartbleed, it's gonna be a certainty someone's gonna hijack a bunch of cryptocurrency exchanges with it. Maybe they'll be the North Koreans. After all, they had such success with that nuke plant last week in India. So what are we going to discuss? So we're going to take this from the technical realm over to more of the security controls realm and talk about the components of three successful financial systems and discuss how their security controls can't just be replaced with crypto so that they can provide that reasonable and appropriate degree of trust. We're going to talk about the two biggest peer-to-peer -peer systems we can find, plus the security controls of the US financial system, and take a look at the assurances cryptocurrencies have in contrast with that. And we're going to demonstrate, based upon the inherent controls in these three systems and Bitcoin, that cryptocurrencies do not provide those assurances that these systems inherently have due to the lack of controls. So first thing I'm going to talk about is the Ithaca hours. And those were started in 1991 by a man named Paul Glover in Ithaca, New York. It's based on the script system. Each hour is based upon the average cost of labor in an, for an hour of work in Tompkins County, New York. And they have hour notes to represent that. They have everything down to like one-tenth of an hour up to an hour. And they all, they're all serial numbers, and they're exchanged between local merchants and small businesses to facilitate those transactions. And it also comes with a directory of companies and providers that will accept these hours in lieu of money. People have paid rent with these. People have paid for their groceries with these. It's a successful system, and it's been duplicated in a number of cities across the country. So what are your controls here? First of all, it's kept intentionally small within Tompkins County, New York. They make it hard to exchange it for dollars. Each bill has a serial number on it, which is incentive to not counterfeit because in the case of US bills, there's so many of them that you can't rely on the serial number. With these, you can, because there's so, there's so few of them. And this is a social contract. So this is between small businesses and people. 
And realistically, when you give someone a bad deal or you don't, or you steal from them, they're, not, they're going to exclude you. And so you have that threat of exclusion by not honoring your commitment to the Ithaca Hours. And it's supported by local residents. You know who accepts these. It's a conscious decision to use them. So we look at the biggest control of Ithaca Hours as being community social norms and controls to enforce their proper usage and security. So it's with kept small within the community, and the community in itself is the biggest security control. So brings me to Hawala. So it's an alternative remittance channel that exists outside the banking system. It's got its origins in South Asia in the 8th century. It's used heavily in the Islamic community because devout Muslims consider the conventional system we have, the fractional reserve banking system and interest-based system, to be ushery. And hence, it is prohibited under Sharia law. So devout Muslims will not use the banking system. And there's actually an entire Islamic banking system with its headquarters in Riyadh and Dubai that people utilize when they do not want to when they want to make sure they follow religious law properly. So how does it work? It uses a network of hawaladars, dealers across the world. If someone needs to send money to someone else, they use a hawaladar. They give them the money, they give them the transaction details, which is usually the name, the city, and a password that the other person's going to use. They give them a small commission that's not interest, and then the hawaladar logs a transaction. So what happens is they the Hawaladar con contacts another Hawaladar in another city and says, hey, give this guy 200 bucks if he gives you the right password. And they do. And what they do is they reconcile their ledgers at a later date using an exchange of either money or goods and services. So what does this mean? What's the controls? It's got an implied social contract based upon honor. Because any Hawaladar that violates it will lose theirs and be excommunicated from their, ne excommunicated from their network or region if they lose their honor, they're most likely going to be excommunicated from their families for bringing shame to them. The dealers all know each other. It's not exactly very easy to set up to become one. And bad actors, unlike Bitcoin, can be very easily booted from the system because of the controls they put around it. So you don't mess up twice being a Hawaladar is what it comes down to. So what are some of the issues? So due to its use of social contracts and not having the controls of the banking system, it can be used as a pseudonymous transfer mechanism just like Bitcoin. Um, again, unlike Bitcoin, bad actors can be booted. And this, they have actually caught terrorists using this. It's also used to evade taxes and scrutiny. And there's a lot of countries, very specifically India, trying to regulate its usage as an underground bank. But it is out there, it is being used, and quite frankly, it's been used 600 years longer than our existing banking system, so it's not going away anytime soon. So let's talk a lot about our U.S. financial system, which is the biggest target of cryptocurrencies. And our system is based upon trust and multiple levels of security controls and auditing to assure integrity because we don't have those social controls in place. While they exist at a much lower level, that's at the, like the community bank level. It's not exactly up at the Federal Reserve level. And the banking system, if you take a look at it, is the most obvious example of risk management that we think exists. Same thing goes for securities. And again, accounting in itself as a discipline is based upon good risk management principles. I could pull a professor over from Craner, they'll tell you exactly that. 
And the biggest feature of the U.S. financial system is strong central banks that monitor financial conditions and do that risk management. The purpose of a bank, of the strong central banks, isn't to exchange money, it's to perform risk management functions. And we're gonna get into that. So the Federal Reserve, which is the biggest of them all, monitors and examines and expect and examines community and regional financial institutions and the large banks to ensure that they comply with rules and regulations. Also monitors that they ensure they operate safely and within established boundaries. And they do that by continual risk checking, risk management and stress tests, especially large financial institutions. They also oversee the financial market utilities, which are the systems used to transfer, clear, and settle payments, securities, and other transactions. Regulation HH of their charter discusses that. But again, they perform risk management functions and either print money or release money to alleviate, alleviate some of the conditions that we have that could lead to a financial market's crash. They also supervise and monitor U.S. branches of foreign banks and they ensure that the foreign banks can effectively interchange with U.S. banks and that they follow our rules doing so. And they also require foreign banking assets worth more than, that have more than 50 billion in assets to establish U.S.-based companies and make sure all the U.S. subsidiaries belong to it. And they enforce what's called solvency ratios. So in other words, everything in banking is based upon fractional reserve. So a bank only has a fraction of the money it claims it has in reserve. And the amount of money that they have in, in the bank versus or under their control versus what they have out there is a solvency ratio. And if your solvency ratio gets too high, your bank could be considered insolvent. So in other words, if you lend money out and you don't get money back in and you have more out than you have more in, you could be at risk for being insolvent. And so one of the ways they work is that they mitigate risk by removing insolvent financial institutions and making sure that we have good players by removing the bad ones. Brings us also to Securities Exchange Commission because in addition to banks, we have securities. Their mission is to protect the investors and to maintain fair, efficient, and orderly markets for securities trading. And they work, they're the ones that require disclosure of relevant and meaningful information about your investments before purchase. They're also the ones that came up with XBRL, the Extensible Business Reporting Language. Every public company in the United States, every quarter has to, has to send in their quarterly report, their 10Q, utilizing XBRL formats. And they require ongoing reporting of the investment securities and their risks. And I can tell you these days, everything I've seen in a 10Q talks about one of the biggest risks being cyber. If you're a company out there, public company, and you don't have cyber as a risk, I don't know what to tell you. They also have enforcement capabilities. <coughs> and they also have oversight of what's called the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, which oversees the audits of public companies. And this came about because of what happened with the financial crash around Enron, where unfortunately a lot of people lost their money and their retirement because their retirements, and a lot of it was due to the fact that auditors were double dipping. And there used to be, what we call the big four, used to be the big five. The fifth was Arthur Anderson, who got tied up in this, not only with Enron, but a bunch of other companies. And their mishaps led to the creation of the PCAOB. We also have FINRA, which is the nonprofit authorized by Congress to protect the investors by ensuring that the broker-dealer industry operates fairly and honestly. 
So anytime you buy stocks from someone, they have to be tested, licensed, and qualified by FINRA. They verify and validate your securities advertisements. So in other words, something that says, I'm going to make three times your money back in a week wouldn't pass muster with them. They ensure that the investments are suitable. They require disclosure about investment products, such as, yes, you will lose money. And they oversee the investment markets to SEC standards on behalf of the SEC. Also brings us to, back to the PCAOB, they were a nonprofit established to oversee audits of public companies because of what happened with Enron and a number of other companies. This led to the Sarbanes-Oxley Act in 2002. And they require that the auditors themselves be subject to external and independent oversight. They oversee the audits of brokers and dealers. They were created to protect investors in the public interest after, and again, I'll keep circling back to Enron, Enron's 401k was Enron stock. And tens of thousands of people lost their retirement. Also in the 90s, a number of companies went belly up, took people's investments with them. It's funded by the accounting support freeze from equity issues, brokers, dealers, and public companies. The audits of public companies are conducted to financial accounting standards boards and American Institute of Certified Public Accountants standards, and we're going to get to those too. So who is FASB, other than this mysterious name I just talked about? They're the financial accounting standards boards. They're based in Norwalk, Connecticut. They establish the financial accounting and reporting standards for organizations that follow generally accepted accounting principles, basically every American company. Most companies outside the United States use a standard called IFRS. The major difference between GAAP and IFRS is how inventory is recorded. So they are recognized by the SEC as a standard setter for public companies in the United States. They are also the authoritative standard setters for the boards of accounting in every state and the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants. And their standards are also used by the Federal Financial Institutions Examinations Council, FFIEC, and their international equivalent is the IASB. So IASB is in charge of IFRS, FASB is in charge of GAAP. I know, when I took accounting, it sounded like that too. So again, you want to know where the rules are that govern the financial markets? Start here, start in Connecticut. Leads us to the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants. They are the rule makers and standard setters for the American accounting profession. They're the ones that develop the audit standards for private, for private companies and public companies. They develop and grade the uniform CPA examination. So in other words, you want someone to look at your books as a CPA, they certify them. They design the test. And they monitor and enforce compliance with technical and ethical standards. Trust me, CP, I've seen CPAs booted from jobs. And the reports and audits from accounting firms have to be done to AICPA standards to satisfy your average board of directors or investors. So in other words, it's like the gold seal. You do not give an audit report in to any company, public or private, don't give it to their board unless it's got the magic acronym there, AICPA. And they provide that standard set of controls and opinions to perform controls, testing, and analysis based on the FASB standards. So I will tell you, I, my first master's degree I actually used AICPA guidance on cloud computing to prove my point about cybersecurity for healthcare because they had such good control sets for cloud computing. But the thing is, no one even knows who they are. But and no one even knows who these or this organization is either. So when people talk about the difference of why finance is so good at information security, it's because everything is centralized. One set of rules from FASB, 
elaborated on and provided guidance by AICPA, and promulgated by the Federal Financial Institutions Examinations Council, which is the formal interagency body that prescribes uniform principles, standards, and forms across multiple agencies. So as you can see here, they cover the Federal Reserve, the FDIC, the National Credit Union Administration, the Office of the Comptroller of Currency, basically your money, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and the State Departments of Banking. Everyone in finance plays off the same rules and guidance and common set of security controls. They provide the guidance and standards to the federal and state institutions. They provide some of the best training out there for federal and state examiners. And they have the continually updated controls and standards that are used to evaluate financial institutions. So in other words, even though the Federal Reserve examines financial institutions, FFIEC and, FF and FASB are the ones that write the controls in the first place. They continually update everything they do for evaluation, and they have centralized cybersecurity standards, standardized control sets, and also they're the ones that have recommended all financial institutions join the Financial Services Information Sharing Advisory Council, FSISAC. It was then the New York Department of Banking and the Massachusetts Department of Banking that forced that. Brings me to another organization, FinCEN, Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. So a lot of you may be familiar with this, of how many people in this room play a lot of online games or do a lot of microtransactions, say like CrowdStrike. FinCEN is the organization that's going after all the microtransactions. So they're part of the Department of Treasury. Part of what they do is safeguard our financial system from illicit use, combat money laundering, i.e. what's going on in CrowdStrike right now, and promote national security through the use of financial authorities and the collection, analysis, and dissemination of financial intelligence. Their intelligence on financial crimes is used by law enforcement, multiple federal, state, and local government customers, and financial institutions, and they also work with FSISAC. So you have this ridiculously good agency here in FinCEN that's working to find out who's doing what and find potential fraud and coming to your favorite online game soon. So, Another big agency that works in con conjunction with everyone else that is mandated for membership is FSISAC. That's an industry consortium dedicated to reducing cyber risk in the global financial ecosystem. They're funded by many of the large financial institutions. So pretty much every bank belongs to FSISAC, but the bulk of the money comes from about the top 10 largest banks in the United States to the tune of millions of dollars a year. There, every bank gets critical intelligence and indicates indicators to better secure our environments, including information from FinCEN on criminals and threats and indication, indicators of compromise for vulnerabilities. So give an example, IU Health is a member of both RAN-ISAC, which is the Research Education and Networking ISAC, of which Purdue is a member, and that's run by Board of Governors based at Indiana University, and also a member of the Healthcare ISAC. So we get information like this from RAN-ISAC and HISAC continually. Banks get the same thing. So if there's an emergent threat out there, we start guarding against it the second we get that email or the second we get that threat. And we actually have an automated system in place that actually does that for us. It gets the threat, starts blocking immediately. And we also provide, they also provide a lot of education for banks on how to better respond to your threats and also incident response playbooks. So even the smallest bank can use them. And the whole purpose of them is designed to facilitate communication and get institutions empowered to be better protected instead of just saying they're protected, giving them the tools that they need. So one other thing that we see that we have in the system is actually insurance. 
So your bank accounts and your securities are protected by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation and the Securities Investor Protection Corporation, the FDIC and the SIPC. If your bank, your credit union, or your brokerage account is with one of these institutions and they go under, you're actually protected up to a certain amount. It's $250,000 per account, I believe, with the FDIC and SIPC up to $750,000. Don't quote me on that. So in other words, you may lose some of your money, but you're not going to lose all of it. So what does this all add up to? With, with, current, with conducting transactions on our existing financial system, we have one set of accounting standards set by an accredited body that also sets security controls as part of it. Everyone uses the same set of standards and controls. Numerous government and nonprofit agencies both utilize and enforce that. So there's also oversight of your banks, your security dealers, your auditors, and your accountants with the ability to remove bad actors that don't meet your standards. And there's insurance and assurance if customers are the victims of bad actors. And more importantly, there's information sharing between everyone on shared threats and also shared cybersecurity standards. So what are some of the issues? Number one, government resources. And I want to point to Bernie Madoff and the SEC as being an example. They're unable to allocate resources effectively to track all the firms. So I learned this one when I actually talked to someone in my CISSP prep class about 10 years ago that worked for the SEC in New York City and was talking about how they suspected Madoff for a long time, but they just didn't have the resources to track him down and figure out what was going on. And governmental appointees may or may not choose to regulate or scale back enforcement actions. So right now we're actually witnessing that with the virtual dismantling of the Consumer, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau under President Trump. And smaller institutions, even with the help of FinCEN and FSISAC, may not have the resources to effectively manage cybersecurity. So your smaller banks still could be potentially attacked and still have major issues. So what does cryptocurrency have? It's decentralized, so you really don't have oversight from the government. And the Federated and the FASB does not consider it cash. It's considered an intangible asset under their guidance. And realistically, because there's no trust, it requires some proof of credibility to establish what you're getting is worth it. So in other words, Ross Ulbricht had a system by which he raided dealers on Silk Road. That's how you knew that amount of Bitcoin was going to get you that amount of drugs because of the rating system. Ransomware, city of Baltimore learned the hard way that by not paying the Bitcoin, they had access to decrypt files and also took files off their network. And the way that people pay ransomware is they get proof that their files have been, are able to be decrypted. And also comparable goods and services. Not going to get into that. And there's no gap guidance yet, which means that I go to any CFO and talk about Bitcoin, they're going to go, okay, what's the gap guidance on this? And when I mention there's none, they're going to look at me and go, please get very far away from me right now. So I'll give you a real life example of it. There was a hospital in Indiana that paid ransom for a ransomware attack about a year and a half ago. And one of the questions that was asked of me by, by finance executives is, what do we do if we ever have to pay ransom? How do we handle Bitcoin? And because I could not give them an answer to gap guidance, which they wanted, on the handling of Bitcoin, they said, we elect to transfer the risk and 
have someone else handle the Bitcoin for us because it was considered too volatile of an asset and there's no way to actually account for it to the standards most corporations want. And also that whole not legal tender part kind of scares away any lawyer. So what does it have? You have prices determined by supply and demand. That means you have to have, a, you have, to have enough miners to meet demand. Less miners does mean higher value and it's not regulated or controlled by a central authority, which means you don't have any trust. That means that the controls that you would usually use, the financial controls, don't really apply here. And there's no accounting standards or controls for, to provide that level of assurance. Therefore, you don't have the standards, you don't have the information sharing or security controls for the wallets or banks. And you don't have the ability to remove bad actors, or as I like to say, here be dragons. So what's been happening? People see the high returns on investment and they're tempted. They see the first movers who started mining Bitcoin in 2009, they see all their money. You see the profiles of them online living in Zug, Switzerland, which has more Ferrari dealers, believe it or not, than any place else in, in Switzerland. And they see people running around who didn't do a lot of work and who have a lot of money. And they see the price spikes and they think, wait a second, I'm only getting 15% out, out of my one index fund and I can make 10,000% here. This is an excellent choice. And this clouds people's judgment, especially compared to what I just talked about, licensed and insured investments, returning between six and 15% a year, and people having widows and orphans stock as opposed to the next big thing where they don't have to worry about that kind of money anymore. So no security standards or controls means that anyone can be a cryptocurrency exchanger, and they do, and they get hacked, and pretty much North Korea will pay a visit to your Bitcoin exchange. And there's a reason they've spent two, there's a reason they've gotten $2 billion for their missile program. And it's because they hack crypto exchanges. People lose a lot of money and people put their trust in the cryptography, not the controls around it. So unlike the Ithaca hours, Hawala or the US financial system, you don't have the social, judicial or legislative controls to boot out the bad actors and prevent their re-entry. So on the other hand, blockchain's got a lot of promise, and I can tell you it's got incredible use case potential in a lot of fields. Right now we're seeing a lot of it in position credentialing, we're seeing a lot of it with data validation, but a lot of that's on private blockchains, not public blockchains yet. And, it's, and when you put blockchain in, it's usually under an existing control system. There was a very good paper that just came out last week in its potential use for healthcare research that was put up by Wendy Charles of CU Anschutz. And there's a lot of promise there, but cryptocurrency still needs to evolve. So what's been happening? Cryptography is really, really hard. And I'm not just talking about the class itself. It's talking about actually implementing cryptography the right way. This is why we have the NSA. This is why we have NIST, DISA, and other uniform services supporting government initiatives. It's because crypto really is that hard. And we have to put our trust in third parties because apart from some people in this room, if I asked your average person with SHA-256, hack, or TLS 1.3R, they'd look at me like I got three heads or that I might need to visit my local mental facility. All of those are cryptographic standards. And a lot of the people that are talking about cryptocurrency these days can't answer those questions. So you have to put your trust in those third parties that know what they're doing because crypto is really complex Debugging crypto is even harder, 
and you really have to have specialized and skilled resources. Even if you think you know how to do it correctly with mathematics, you probably don't. I can trust, I've been in this field over 20 years, I trust a grand total of five people to debug, crypto, to, be, to debug issues of cryptographic algorithms. And one, of them is, and one of them is a Princeton PhD. So unless you're one of those very few people, you're opening yourself up. Your average bank is more secure than a Bitcoin exchange because you're operating in a trusted environment. There's no control agreement between your operators. You don't have good information sharing. While I know there's some examples of it, it's isolated. And there's little protection from your bad actors, your fraudsters, or your criminals. And there's no way to consistently signal what I call assurance or agreement. There's no contracts, there's little or no oversight. So basically, the risk of burninating your money is very high. So where do we need to go from here to improve this? Eventually, we're gonna see cryptocurrencies backed by central banks. And what's happened in China last week, we think that's gonna happen a lot sooner. We think China's gonna be first in actually issuing a cryptocurrency backed by a central bank. And then they're gonna get brought into the same controls and infrastructure that protect our financial system and the same information sharing communities. Then you're gonna provide the assurances that they're safe to use. Until then, we don't recommend their usage because the controls that we see in the US financial system or with the social-based systems like Hawala or Ithaca hours, they don't exist. And Utopia is not there and it's never gonna be. It's gonna be government backed. So with that, thank you very, very much. You can follow me on Twitter and here's my email. Thank you very much, have a great day. So I can take any questions if anyone has any. I believe that this all is just a bunch of noise. And the real issues are the, <clears throat> the derivatives. Last time I checked, it was more than $700, $800 trillion. And there's the deficit, which is basically mind-boggling. If you add the deficit from the federal, the state, local, not including the companies, it's $40, $50 trillion. So what do you say to those people? They just know they want to get people off the, the real issues rather than just talking about Bitcoin, which, which some people, they believe it doesn't have any intrinsic value. So it's just a hype like the tulips that you have. What do you say to those people? So the big issue that I see, and again, I am not an economist, is that we have a central bank that is continually printing out money and a economy here in the United States, which is actually based upon debt service. So I think that the only way you're going to unwind the situation like that is to, is to transform yourself from financing yourself off of debt, in debt interest payments and start paying down the debt, start spending a lot less money at the central government level, and be very careful about your issuance of new currencies and securities. And again, that's something like that's gonna take generations to wind down because ultimately, as I demonstrated earlier, this has been going on since the 14th or 15th century. So we've had these markets in place for years. Well, we've seen exponential growth in about the past 100 years. It's something that's gonna take the work of a lot of people who win Nobel Prizes, not myself, to wind down what's been going on in our derivatives markets. And I think, honestly, Bitcoin is it's a distraction from the real, I do believe that this current cryptocurrency issue is a little bit of a distraction from the real issue of our ballooning debt and the fact that we print money 
to address a lot of issues. But again, at least our real financial system is based upon a good series of controls and recourse. And literally, I don't believe that the current Bitcoin market is based upon any of that. And I think if there is one that's cryptocurrency market that's based upon a good set of controls, we'll be better off. Did I answer your question there? I have a lot of questions, but part of it, not all of it. I'm not convinced, but that's okay. Okay. So I can catch up with you afterwards. Any other questions? Okay, for th thank you all so much for attending and braving the rain to come out here today.